How do cultural forces impact the church in China? In that context, Confucianism penetrates and infiltrates the totality of Asian life. Confucius actually says education makes one moral. The more education you have, the more holy you are. And that carries over into lots of different things and how the church perceives pastors and lay people within it. Dr. Diane Poitras explains the questions Christians in Asia often ask when they come to the Bible and some questions that they and us should be asking instead today on the show. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Mobilization for APWE, joined yet again by Scott Dunford, West Coast Mobilizer and Lead Church Planter at Redeemer Church in Fremont, California. And Scott, it's good to be talking to you again. I am looking forward to something we've already been talking about on the show a little bit, which is our event coming up in Louisville. And I know that we are in conversations about getting a, another potential person to join our platform. I don't want to say who everything's up in the air, but I do want to build a little bit of intrigue. Well, there you go. I, if we, as, as if we needed more intrigue, um, we have enough intrigue just wondering what Darren Carlson's going to say. So <laughs> you never know what's going to come out of Darren Carlson's mouth or from his keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> so we're excited about that, and uh, I think we're going to have a, a great panel and a great lunch. And I hope a lot of our listeners will come as well as. As, as bring their fellow pastor friends and and others who might be interested in in talking about uh, who are the nations in Matthew chapter twenty eight and what is the role of the local church and how the local church uh, is equipped uh, to to reach the nations. So I think it'll be a, a great discussion. Well, speaking of the nations, Scott, uh, at the time of the recording of this episode, something that is still filling the headlines is the coronavirus in China, and I know this is something that's near to your heart and. It relates to what we're going to be talking today with. We have a very special guest on the line that I'm excited to introduce in a moment. But I'm just curious from your perspective, having served in East Asia, what does that do for you as you're seeing, you're learning about some of these things and the, the health uh, crisis and the outbreak? Uh, you know, on a human level, of course, you know, you're heartbroken for people. Um, these are majority of the people, especially that don't know the Lord, um, are very fearful of death and um, and and this is a, a scary time for them for sure. Um, it, it, it isn't surprising. I mean, having lived there, and you know, I, I remember going in with a with an infection, a sinus infection, and basically being told, uh, you know, take three days of antibiotics and you're going to be better. You know, and you're like, wait, three days? Like, aren't I supposed to have like a two week regimen? <laughs> so <laughs> some of those things don't completely shock me that that these things break out like this. Right. Um, but it, it's obviously really scary. And um, and I know from hearing uh, both Christian workers that are there, but also just people who are living there, expats that are living there, like. Um, you know, you're, you're pretty much confined to your home and you're only allowed to go out. Like in one city, uh, one of my friends said that only, uh, one of the two, one of, one of the adults could leave at a time and the other ones had to stay behind and only to get supplies. And if you don't wear a mask, you get yelled at by the police and get a threat of arrest. So they're, they're taking it really seriously. And I'd say here on the West coast where we have a high population of Chinese, uh, people, um, People are taking it really seriously and are mm. afraid as well. I've been reading through a couple of biographies of Hudson Taylor lately, uh, founder of China Inland Mission. 
And it's amazing to think that one, there's this point in history where there were no believers in inland China. And now conservatively, we're looking at upwards of 150 million or more uh, believers yeah, in China. It's, it's amazing. It is. And the reports that I've heard, I, I haven't read in detail on the subject um, transparently, but the reports that I've heard in passing uh, have to do with that the believers are really praying openly repenting, recognizing, you know, corporately on behalf of the nation. We're a nation that's gone astray from the one true God. And we deserve all of these Deuteronomic curses. We deserve pestilence and all these sorts of things, but that they're praying that it would result in the spread of the gospel and in repentance um, at every strata of society. And so we can certainly join people in that prayer. But what we do want to talk about is some of the uh, uniquenesses of Christianity in Asian contexts versus Christianity here in the West, as we're accustomed to it. And we've received a lot of positive feedback uh, in our conversations with the husband of our current guest, right, Scott? Well, yeah, there's probably no guest that's come to us more highly uh, recommended. Um, <laughs> so we had the great honor of, of interviewing twice now, Vern Poitras. And every time we talk, he keeps saying, you're talking to the wrong, the wrong Dr. Poitras. You really need to talk to my wife. She's the one that uh, has the experience overseas. She's the one that has the training. And so we are really excited to invite uh, Dr. Diane Poitras, uh, she's got her PhD in Reformation History and Theology from Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, before that, she studied and got her MTS at Gordon Theological Seminary. Um, and I think this is awesome. I hope we have some time to talk about it, but studied under Francis and Edith Schaefer at Labrie. And uh, I'm sure that was an amazing experience and was a missionary in Europe, Taiwan, served on staff at InterVarsity. And of course, as a speaker, writer, uh, theological uh, teacher and housewife, and uh, of course, married to Vern and uh, mother of two grown sons. And we are so thrilled to have you on our show. Welcome, uh, Dr. Mrs. Diane Poitras. Welcome. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. It's a huge honor to have you. And we wanted to sort of tee up the conversation. Can you share with us a little bit about your background in Asia? Uh, when I was on the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, I was assigned to Urbana as staff. And while I was there, um, their concentration is sending missionaries and preparing people for the mission field. So I uh, heard the call of the Lord at that point, uh, who will go? And I thought, well, I'm single. I don't have any particular ties that would keep me here. I, I can go. And so I uh, offered myself to the PCA MTW Mission Board, um, at thinking that I would go in one direction possibly uh, for a mission field, but they did an assessment and said, well, we want you to go to Taiwan. And at that point, I didn't really even know where it was. I didn't know uh, anything about the country. Hmm. Um, but... Uh, while I was itinerating, there were other missionaries itinerating who were fourth generation uh, Asian missionaries, and they took me under their wing and said, we uh, can see that you need to be equipped <laughs> before you go. So what they did was uh, they decided that they would uh, train me for three months wow. uh, in their off times and my off times from mission conferences. And um, they taught me Asian philosophy, uh, theology, history, geography, literature, 
children's literature etiquette mission strategy, both in the past and in the present. Um, they opened up uh, Confucian Analects and read directly from the Chinese to me in English, translating it as they went along and explaining how uh, that applied and then began teaching me the language um, and helping me go through about a thousand characters there. So college, they, they introduced the culture first and right. then got you into the language. Uh, it was all simultaneous. I, they gave okay. me assignments mm-hmm. and things to read and then come back to them on. But um, their goal was to uh, prepare me in such a way that I had the um, knowledge and the experience of a, someone who'd been on the field for 10 years before I got off the plane. And they actually, they succeeded. It was, it was amazing. What, uh, by the time I got there, um, I had that kind of a background. Did you know you had a, an aptitude for language at that point? Um, that was what the uh, MTW assessment said, that that was one of the <laughs> one of the reasons why they were sending me to uh, Taiwan. Wow. And so what did your ministry there at that time look like in Taiwan? Um, I was on a church planting team. And so my job was to reach out to the college students and to do um, some English uh, outreach Bible studies during the week, um, also to train up some of the the college young people uh, to um, help with the Sunday school, uh, play the piano for church service. But my major work was every Sunday afternoon, 150 uh, people would come to um, an English-speaking outreach at the church. It was called Taipei English Fellowship. And... Um, that was where there would be some sort of a program and a, and a gospel presentation. From that, I took about or offered uh, to do a, a survey of the Bible. About 30 people came to that. From that, there were about eight people that um, wanted to actually learn and be discipled in how to lead Bible studies. Um, so I taught them and then they actually did that while I was there. And then I had two people that uh, were um, peers and helpers. One we would call a Bible woman, uh, but she was about 10 years younger than I was, um, who got me uh, coordinated with the language and with the situation of everything that was going there. So if I went to a Buddhist temple, um, like this young woman would go with me. And if they spoke Taiwanese and not just Mandarin or my Mandarin was insufficient, um, she would jump in and and explain and go on uh, with me through that. So they both um, became very... um, prominent and influential leaders in the church after I left for the next 30 years. Uh, they were very active, both of the, the two that I mentored and that mentored me while I was there. And so for how many years were you ministering in Taiwan? Two. Two. Is, is, that, is that the time that you met your husband? No, um, I was... I, I had to leave the mission field because I had a handicapped sister and I needed to take care of her because it was becoming obvious she was not going to be able to, to sustain herself, even though she graduated from law school and my parents weren't going to be able to take care of her and I couldn't bring her to the mission field. So uh, I left the mission field in order to find ways to sustain and care for her. And that led me to doing the the PhD. And while I was doing my PhD, I met my husband. 
Uh, one of the things that makes us so grateful to interview you is that you are an expert in your own field. You're not just the wife of one of our uh, guests, and uh, you, you understand things like theology, you understand systematic theology, and yet you've spent a lot of time uh, in an East Asian context, and you've probably seen firsthand that they're bringing different questions and presuppositions to the text of scripture than many of us from a North American context are. So uh, we could maybe guess generally about what those are. What were some of those things that you observed, the questions that they were bringing into those conversations? Uh, Some of them I would say were, um, well, uh, before I get into any specific questions, I would have to put them within a particular context. And that context is Confucianism, Um, because Confucianism um, penetrates and infiltrates the totality of Asian life. And I wouldn't confine that to just one particular Asian country, but pretty much most Asian countries, actually. Um, and if you don't understand the effects and the the influence of Confucianism, you're not going to be able to understand where the questions are going and where they're originating from. So, you know, yes, they ask different questions, but those con- questions are within that particular context. Um, and I would, I guess what, what I would say is that that, particular context has a couple of major um, effects on uh, society in general, but also on the church. And the two prongs of that that I would say are most influential are uh, Confucius' uh, emphasis uh, on education, um, where he actually says education makes one moral. And therefore, the more education you have, the more holy you are and the more honor you receive. And that carries over into lots of different Mm. things in terms of external credentials and how the church perceives pastors within it and uh, lay people. So that's one whole area of Confucianism that's very influential. I'm glad you started with the issue of Confucianism. It's not something that we've dived into uh, in any level of detail on the show before. Walk us through what what are the basic uh, beliefs of Confucianism? Um, Confucianism actually is not understood in terms of a philosophy. It's more in terms of a whole cultural etiquette and worldview so that it permeates things in such a way that um, people have not been able to have not stood apart from them and said, oh, that's Confucianism. So even when I talk to um, someone in this country from the Chinese context, they they often mm-hmm. don't see that connection uh, between what they're doing or thinking or how they're approaching something um, and, and the source of it. So um, as I said, the one the one major thing that affects the church, for example, is Confucius' understanding of um, education making you moral, mm. um, which is why you know, there's so many examples, but there's why Chinese would not put a, a, a book on the floor, would not put a Bible on the floor. They would not sit on a desk. They would not um, throw up an eraser. Or, you treat all instruments of education with great respect. You know, so there's a certain etiquette that goes with that philosophy. Then there's the whole idea of how you treat teachers and how you honor them and how you respect them. And um, the more 
education somebody has, the more you would respect them. You carry their their briefcase from one class to another. Um, that because of their higher um, face uh, uh, in within the society, their higher prestige or position or status. Um, and then that also carries over to pastors within a church that they are considered the pinnacle of hierarchy within the church. And so you would never contradict them. You would never criticize them. You would never even give a suggestion because to give a suggestion is to say that whatever they had been doing previously is not right and therefore something can be improved so there's never any um within the society as a whole there's never any um, encouragement to critique or discern what is right or what is wrong you just obey those that are higher than you so all of that there's so many areas in which that that overlaps, including ancestor worship and parental, uh, the, the filial piety. All of that comes from this one idea of education making you moral. And the, the, it grows into, okay, who has more education than you? Obviously, anybody older than you. So you always obey your older brother. Um, and he has the greater authority over everybody else in the family of all mm. the siblings. You would obey parents unhesitatingly because they are older. That means they have more education. But then that begins to spill over into ancestors. They obviously um, preceded you and gave birth to your parents and trained them. And therefore, they are due a respect. So you begin to get ancestor worship out of all of that. So it mm. just overflows into all kinds of aspects of society um, and how people treat one another, both in the church and outside of the church. I'm curious, do you have an opinion you know, as you interact with different, obviously uh, Confucian philosophy is not just a, it is, he was Chinese, but it influenced all of that part of East Asia. Do you see a difference in how, um, the, the, the ongoing influence of Confucian culture and thinking in Taiwan versus mainland China versus, you know, Japan, for instance, um, do you see a difference or is it pretty standard throughout Asia in your, in your experience? Um, I would say it's pretty standard everywhere. It depends on how traditional the society is. And I would say um, in Korea, it's um, more intense than it is in Taiwan. In Taiwan, it's more intense than it is in Hong Kong. Uh, um, it kind of goes from north to south. Um, it, and, well, the foods change from north to south, too. It's very right, interesting. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, there's an intensity of, of uh, cultural, traditional uh, input into the uh, everyday life that intensifies the further north you go. Following up on that, then, in the context of working with Chinese believers, uh, with some of that worldview baggage. It's cultural. It has to do with etiquette, but there is a worldview that accompanies that. Um, what are some maybe good ways that you've seen that uh, give them an understanding of, of certain more Eastern uh, aspects of scripture? Uh, but then maybe what are some ways in which that baggage has been a hang up to the worldview of the scriptures? <laughs> Um, let me let me start with the um, the hang up problems first. Um, 
part of what will happen is that, um, as I said, you they uncritically follow a pastor and give him honor, and therefore the pastor grows in pride and um, sort of a certain autonomy. Mm. Um, this becomes stronger. I think I've seen it more strongly in Korea than anywhere else, um, where the pastor is basically a, a, premier, a premier dictator and uh, all all of the elders are yes men. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah. that has caused all kinds of problems. And it's because of this absolute um, authority that is given to the pastor and uh, the, what happens as well is that if you see the pastorate as that kind of a position, then you have people um, who aspire to that position who are not Christians or are mm. very immature Christians. They want to be a right. megastar. And that's, they don't want, if they go to a seminary and they graduate, they don't want to go to the countryside and the rural areas. They want a big church immediately with lots of prestige, a lot of influence, a lot of um, uh, money um, and uh, the the relationship, the networking um, is heightened uh, in that situation. Does that play? Does that play into the mega church culture of South Korea? Uh, because some of the largest evangelical churches in the world are there, especially in Seoul. Yeah, and there's been a huge amount of problems in that, uh, in those mega churches in Seoul as well. Um, the part of the problem is that they have bought into um, Im- imitation is uh, how you best honor your elders and those who are higher than you, you carry that over and you say, who is the most influential person? And within the reform context, that's Tim Keller. So everybody wants to imitate Tim Keller. They want to be Tim Keller. So they will take over his, uh, his lecture style, his sermon style, his way of approaching everything, mm-hmm. his theology, and without even understanding it necessarily at all, um, they just take it because he is the one that you imitate. And by imitating him, you will bring honor to your family because you will be great because he's great. Um mm. And there's a a certain external credential that comes with this kind of a, again, this guanxi, this association with somebody else who's important and following them. Um, There's an assumption that by following a master, you will become a master. And that happens in art and music and um, uh, in um, poetry. You know, all of those things are built into the culture. And again, it goes back to this, the Confucian idea of following the master and and honoring those who have more education than you do. It it becomes very um, pervasive in so many ways. So within the church, They'll say, "Okay, I have to have head knowledge and head knowledge uh, will then give me status or face hierarchy, that kind of thing. And then I become a megastar and I can imitate the mega churches and just take over everything they do in terms of liturgy or songs or or 
uh, sermon content, and it's done without discernment. So you can think without mentioning certain large churches in in Texas that have a huge megastar pastor and televangelist, and they will just imitate him and his words and his content without any critiquing because he is successful. Um, So if he's successful, then that's what I must follow and do. So they pretty much blindly are asking, how do I become Tim Keller? Um, Mm. And what I, well, I, I, yeah, yeah I, I don't want to get off of this topic yet. I want to drill down, continue that thought. Okay. Um, right. But we first want to take a quick break and we'll be right back on the Missions Podcast today with Diane Poitras. The Missions Podcast is back at T4G and we're going big. If you'll be in Louisville on April 15th, join us at the Ice House, half a mile from the Yum Center for the local church and the nations, a special live recording of the Missions Podcast with an expert panel. Yeah, guests that you're familiar with, guests that we've had in the show like Zane Pratt, Darren Carlson, Brooks Buser, Paul Davis, John Clausen, and George Collins will join us to answer when Jesus said to disciple all the nations, what did he mean by that? Did he mean countries or people groups or languages and making it practical what can ordinary churches do about that how we answer can make or break our strategies it'll be riveting edifying and we mentioned it's the cheapest lunch in town yeah so grab your spot and your food for just ten dollars go to missionspodcast.com slash t4g or follow the link in the show notes and if you're not signed up yet for t4g our partner live global use the code t4g20 live global 10 off to receive ten dollars off your t4g registration Go into the show notes to see exactly how that's spelled. That's T4G20 Live Global 10 off. You get $10 off your registration and we'd love to see you there. Absolutely. So join us and we'll see you in Louisville on April 15th at T4G. A special message from ABWE President Paul Davis. ABWE missionaries are coming beside the lost and the hurting around the world. And through the Global Gospel Fund, they're pulling people from the darkness and training them as leaders. They're planting churches, and they're even beginning their own missions movements. You may already support one ABWE missionary. Would you consider a gift to the Global Gospel Fund to support all 1,000 of our missionaries? Thank you for that. Become a partner today at abwe.org slash global gospel fund. Training is the biggest common denominator in people who make it through the first two years and people who don't. Brooks Buser, president of Radius International. Radius is a 10-month intensive training school that trains students who are going to church plants among the last 3,100 unreached groups left in the world. The driving burden is really to see every language group reached with a really strong, lasting New Testament church. Okay, so why should someone attend Radius International? I would say someone should attend radius because we see missionaries that don't make it because they weren't expecting the challenges that were coming at them. Everyone's going to hit hurdles. It's what you do when you hit those hurdles. If you've had those challenges at radius, you get to see those challenges. You get to experience some of them in the environment in Tijuana. And you also have capable staff that have a background and can guide you through a lot of those hurdles. And so you tend to do much better. I'm one of the team leaders. He says there's just something different about radius graduates. They understand and they get through things a lot faster and they do better on the field when the hard times come. What's your final challenge? Go to radiusinternational.org, radiusinternational.org.
And we're back. And Diane, you were you were continuing to explain this problem of imitation and authority and hierarchy before our break. Um, and a question that I have relating to some of this is what you're sharing with us, some of the problems that you've seen that are kind of inherited from this Confucian etiquette uh, in Asia. Uh, if you were to bring this before uh, some of the Asian believers that you work with, would it be one of those things of, yeah, you're right, we, we do struggle in that regard. We're constantly confronting that. Or would it be one of these controversial things of how dare you? How how dare you say that? I'm I'm just curious how some of what you're saying here to us, how that's received elsewhere. Uh, yeah, it depends on the uh, the particular person's uh, what I, uh, sanctification and whether, they, frankly, whether they're actually a Christian, um, because Christians. Um, quickly see the need for repentance in certain areas. And actually, the Chinese group on campus at Westminster asked us to talk to them about what problems we saw in the Chinese church. And Mm. um, I basically told them, you want to be Tim Keller, you don't want to be like Tim Keller. And I can say that because Tim was my classmate and his wife, Kathy, was my roommate. So I know know them very well. (laughs) And I can say, I know... Tim studied his Greek and Hebrew and it did it you know, very intensively. I know that he was reading. I know that he was fasting. I know that he was praying. I know that he was um, studying all kinds of, of things about scripture and digging into it. Are you willing to do that? That's what it means to be used of God. That's and, and whether or not God uses you in ways that are great in the eyes of the world is not what we're looking for. We are mm-hmm. looking to please God, build up God's kingdom and honor God for his glory, not our own. So when I say that to them, those who are truly Christian and have not entered the ministry for the sake of um, of honoring their parents um, uh, by becoming great somehow, um, those who hear that repent and say, yes, um, I need to put God's glory above my own and God's, and I need to work and not idolize man, but um, love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And um, that includes um, all, every part of my life, including my desires uh, for what that means to be a, a minister, a shepherd. And I think you're, you're asking what is the positive thing we can do is that um, that people can uh, begin to look at what does it mean to have a, um, a spiritual theology. And by that, I mean a true godliness of life that uh, is not neglecting knowledge and is able to teach about God and his word and nevertheless is a humble servant and shepherd. And that comes from a kind of discipleship and sanctification um, that uh, is not emphasized enough within the church. It's more how to do this, how to become that, um, um, and, and looking for quick, fast externals rather than the internal working of sanctification of the Holy Spirit through the means of grace. Um, and that's where I would um, I would encourage uh, or talk to people or work with them um, in terms of growing uh, in uh, 
bringing the church into a, a obedience um, and in such a way that it glorifies God. When we deal with like issues of culture and you had, you already alluded to this, that like Confucian culture is so permeated in the Eastern, uh, you know, in, in the East, especially that they don't even notice that it's there. It's just part of the fabric of, of their life and existence. Um, if you were to compare it to something uh, Western that maybe our listeners could identify with, like, would you, would you put Confucian uh, ideal as like, on a similar level as like, in the enlightenment or, or what, what kind of a, how would you compare it to something in the West that we are unaware of? We just blindly go about our lives, assuming certain things. Um, what would be the comparison in the West? Do you think? I'm curious to hear about that, especially cause yeah, what you're saying really does overlap with some of the Christian celebrity culture that we have in North America. Yeah. And I think, um, uh, the, it, it's uh, opposed to um, in opposition to in the West, what we would think in terms of a strong individualism, which obviously came from the Enlightenment, but also an equality uh, that um, I what I think and I do is right because mm-hmm. I thought it up. Sure. So, so you, so can you give us a little background as to how you've gotten into theological education in Asia? Because I think that will also allow us to to dive into some other other areas and other questions that we might have about um, how culture and our background shape the way we even come to theology. So, how did you kind of get back into ministry overseas, especially in Asia, uh, in theological education? Um, one of the graduates of Westminster who got his doctorate here um, invited his two daughters that graduated from Westminster. And while he was here visiting them, he visited me and asked if I would come uh, teach uh, Reformation history because they were starting a, a TH a THM program in Reformation history. And I had just published my book on um, the reform of Basel on Eklampadius, and um, he wanted me to come talk about Swiss Reformation and history of the Reformation. So uh, that's how it started, and that was in uh, 2012. And so we've been returning there ever since. Um, but I've also had continuing relationships with all of the, the students here on, at Westminster that are coming from um, a Chinese cultural contexts and um, uh, sometimes have led Bible studies for the women in Chinese because some of the wives don't want to ever learn Chinese because they're not going to be here that long. Um, and yet they want to be uh, taught and trained. Um, so there's, that's been sort of the context. And then, so since 2012, my husband and I have gone back once or twice a year to um, teach courses or do conferences or speak at a women's seminar or uh, speak to a pastoral wives um, uh, grouping, or I, I've done all kinds of different things, whatever they ask, um, I, I am willing to do for them. So you're, you and your husband are, are pretty well known um, as far as like in your, in your writing and your thinking on issues of theology. Um, what would you say are, are some of the areas where um, 
I'm particularly interested in, in like the, the question of, of culture and theology. So obviously the Bible is transcultural and speaks to every culture, but, but each culture kind of comes to the world with certain questions about how things are. Um, as you're, as you teach in a Asian context, what are some of the things that you've been surprised by the questions that they're asking of the universe or about, about existence in the world in the Bible versus the kind of questions you are getting in, in from, from Western students? Do you see a difference? Oh, big difference. Yes. Um, and, and if I generalize, I apologize because I can't um, speak for you know obviously there are people that will not fit this right, right. but um, in general uh, most of the questions that come up uh, after in a Q&A session after some theological presentation or biblical presentation are how can I manipulate God or other people to do what I want now that can take all kinds of forms. It can be uh, in the shape of um, how do I how do I make my wayward daughter behave? Mm. Um, how do I um, bring pressure on um, my friend's husband who's committing adultery? Uh, it's all it's all uh, very much how do I manipulate somebody else to do what I think they ought to do? Uh, how do I make somebody good? Uh, according to my standards and my, for my sake. Um, so there's not so much the questions that you would hope would be asked about how, how do I grow in, in godliness and how could I, how can I, how do I give the gospel to others? And, um, or mm. how can, you know, I think Americans tend to think in terms of strategies and business and, and overviews more. Whereas, among the Chinese, I hear more very personal questions of um, how do I make my coworker who's lazy um, start working better and, and more mm. efficiently. Um, and where do you where do you tend to go in scripture then as you're getting asked those questions? Where do you take them? Because I'm also thinking, you know, wherever you're taking them and whatever um, doctrines and texts that you begin to work out with them are going to be good things for listeners of ours, people who may have a heart to be a missionary in Asia someday, right. um, texts with which to familiarize themselves and be ready to minister on those particular subjects. Um, I mean, primarily, always the answer to everything is the gospel, right? So right. you have to kind of constantly point back to them and say, this is in God's hands. And God is the one who has made them. They need to uh, uh, be, repent and they can't repent unless uh, the Lord himself gives them a heart um, uh, of faith by his grace. And then what, so you need right. to be presenting gospel to them. You present Christ to them in both in your words and in your life, and you're praying for them. But I find a lot of times that most of them don't even know the gospel, frankly. Uh, they think they do, but they mm. don't. And a lot of people oh. think that because they've grown up in a Christian home, therefore they're Christians, um, and they don't know the gospel at all. Um, I th think one of the verses that I've used uh, on numerous occasions is that uh, whatever is not of faith is sin, and they're shocked 
absolutely shocked when they hear that. And I'm talking mm. to seminary students. I'm not talking about the man on the street or the layman in the pew. I'm talking about seminary students. And how many sins does it take to go to hell? One. Well, they're shocked. And I've even had seminary students come up and say, why, did, why was Jesus mad at the Pharisees? Because everything is external. And again, it goes back to Confucian obedience and what obedience looks like. It has nothing to do with anything internal. And all of that is carried over mm. into the church. And therefore, if I'm externally obedient, why would Christ um, uh, criticize me? You know, uh, and they, there's no understanding of, of heart or um it goes the other way and it's all feeling and no knowledge. And so you have the church is kind of uh, you can have two different emphases. You can have orthodoxy, which can then become very dead and just factual and people getting up and reading the um, uh, Calvin's commentaries as as if or Calvin's institutes uh, as a, um, a sermon. And that, that happens, that happens right. or, and, and just mm. totally, it's a philosophy. It is not, has nothing to do with knowing God and being born again and having faith in the one um, who is the, the savior and the only savior. On the other side, you can have people who mm. um, want to do everything according to their feelings and what their heart quote unquote says to them. And that leads into heresy, obviously, uh, so that you get a lot of um, churches that are uh, moving in that direction because they just kind of do what they feel what they feel is the right thing to do. Now, how do I deal with things as a as a Christian? Um, I, I give them obviously a gospel uh, emphasis. Right. Um, I have to emphasize to them that God is holy and sees everything because there's no concept of who the real God is. There's a concept of idols. There's a concept of, of spirits working out in the world. But there's not a concept of one holy, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God who sees all, knows all, and is the judge of the world. Um, that That is foreign. And they carry over ideas of bribing God. You know, if I do this, then God will bless me. Well, you know, there's things in scripture similar, but it comes over from uh, a lot of idolatrous stuff um, that is mixed into the culture, including ancestor worship. If I feed the ancestors, they won't curse me and won't give me trouble when it's ghost month and when all the hungry ghosts return and the, the, the kind of things that they have uh, within the culture. Um, so to emphasize that God is holy and he sees all one sin would send you to hell. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Um, the other thing that I've emphasized to them, if taking up the idea of ancestor worship, I say, you think it's so important to honor your father and your father's father and so on. Who is the greatest father? Who is the one who has made all? Who is the creator, sustainer, who gave life to your great-grandfather, to your father? Who is the mm. one who has provided uh, life for any of them or given them any education and the ability to be educated? Is it not the great father, mm. the, the Tienfu, the, the, the heavenly father? Um, so I, I take the culture and push it back into 
God himself um, as the greatest father to be honored above all else. I also wonder if relevant to that discussion of ancestor worship would be texts like you have in the Gospels um, in uh, John 8, uh, that the Jews take such pride in Abraham as their father. And uh, Jesus says, you know, before Abraham was, I am, you know, you have God being uh, completely supreme over all of those things and that he's uh, not the, the God of the dead, but of the living. Right. And, exactly. and how much more worthy of, of reverence and worship is he. But I'm just amazed that it really does all come back to the gospel and it comes back to the holiness of God, uh, because that's exactly what we need in our tradition and evangelicalism in the West. It's, it's not any different. It's the same things that we constantly need to be returning to. Right. And and that's, you know, it's always the answer is always um, the gospel and, and um, what God has done in Christ and tells us uh, through his scripture, um, through his Holy Spirit um, of what's going on and why and what our lives are all about and uh, denying ourselves and giving ourselves to him as our Lord and Savior in, in every way, shape and form um, and not compromising that um, because of culture, and which we do in America and every other place does it, but they'll we compromise it at different points, right? You know, I, I think uh, so many what you said already is is probably pretty mind blowing to a lot of our listeners, um, especially just thinking through the Confucian ideals and how that permeates culture and how that affects the church it should also cause us to to really um, to stop and, and analyze how our own culture affects the way we view theology. Yeah. But uh, I, I think we're going to have to even have another episode, maybe if you'd be willing to come back on and even go deeper a little bit into how the theological trainer as you're teaching theology, how we can um, help our students move beyond their own culture and to really see the Bible for, uh, for what it is saying to all cultures and then, you know, to really develop a, a biblical worldview rather than in imposing our culture onto the, onto the text. But, but as we're wrapping up here, I, I just want to give you an opportunity. What are some ways that if our, our listeners are listening in and going, man, I would really love to connect uh, with, with Dr. Poitras here and, and talk to her more about some of these issues. Um, or is there any other ways they can connect with you um, and find out more about what you're writing and, and working on currently? Probably the best way would be through Westminster and sending it to my husband. All right. So we can put that in the show notes, that contact information, or you can always reach out to Alex and, or myself and, and we can, we can connect you. We're so glad to have you on the show. It was super insightful and I just am so thankful for uh, the amount of energy and effort that goes into not just becoming um, a doctor in, in uh, these areas of theology and in church history, but, but also really becoming a student of another culture and language. And I know that that takes an incredible lifetime of effort. And so thank you for your ministry and uh, thank you for joining us on the show today. Yeah. And I, I have to say thank you for having me, but also thank you to the experts that train me because I'm not an expert, but I've been trained by experts. We're all the sum of our influences, aren't we? Yeah. Well, very good. Thanks again, Diane. Thanks for listening. To get more content, go to missionspodcast.com or check out abwe.org slash podcast. 
If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. To ask a question or suggest a topic, email alex at missionspodcast.com, and we'll see you next time on the Missions Podcast.